As we return this morning to our study of Matthew chapter 9, I want to speak to the significance of the wonderful works of Jesus. I think at times it's tempting to simply read the gospel accounts and read the stories of Jesus is really nothing more than a collection of the sermons and miracles done by an ancient religious leader without considering the purpose of these events. Again, the world reads the Bible sometimes and kind of points out different things and says, oh, that's neat about Jesus, and that's special, and that's great, and they sort of keep him at arm's length. But our purpose in asking questions is to know him better. And as we approach the text of Scripture, we need to ask questions like, why did Jesus feed the poor? Why did he heal the sick and cast out demons and raise the dead? The social gospel advocates will tell you that it was because he was seeking to model for us what a utopian society would look like. And I would argue that a utopia is coming in the arrival of the kingdom of God, but that is impossible today because of the pervasiveness of sin in the world. We're not going to have the the dream society that we long for in this age. And as long as there is sin in the world, society will continue to degrade and descend into madness until Christ returns. Our only hope, however, is to be delivered from the present darkness and transferred to a different kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of righteousness, the kingdom of Christ. And while humans are prone to anoint their own saviors, in the form of monarchs and ministers and even presidents, world history bears witness to the truth that no king, no king has ever been able to provide lasting peace, true justice, vast prosperity, brotherly kindness, or joy and happiness. No human king can satisfy our earthly desires. We need instead a transcendent king, a powerful king, an all-wise king, a righteous king. We need a divine king. And the Bible promises coming of such a king. And he would come as a descendant of Israel's greatest human king, King David. And so when Israel looked forward to the coming of that king, there were certain markers that characterized his arrival because they were longing for this arrival. In Isaiah 35, what we read this morning, the prophet foretells the markers of this coming kingdom, and he writes this, Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, Take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but He will save you. It says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. The question again is, how do we know when the anointed king will come? Because he will be the fulfillment of the promises of the word of God. He will come as the Son of Man with authority. He will come as the Son of God with truth. And He will come as the Son of David with mercy. And so with that, turn with me, if you haven't already, to Matthew chapter 9. The end of Matthew 9 really brings us to the conclusion of this phase of Jesus' healing ministry. We saw the healing ministry of Christ in chapters 8 and 9. 
And while we know that he healed all throughout the three-year ministry that he had, Matthew recounts the events in such a way in his telling of the gospel so as to demonstrate the works of Jesus, which will therefore identify him as the long-awaited Messiah or Christ. Christ and Messiah are the same thing. In the ever-expanding drama of Matthew 8 and 9, we see the realms of Jesus' power as he exerts authority over the physical ailments of people, nature, over the angelic realm, the spiritual realm, even over death itself. Of course, the more amazing the ministry, the more menacing the adversary. Chapter 9 also introduces us to some of Jesus' opponents, the Pharisees, who rather than embrace Jesus as the Messiah, seek to undermine Him, twist and turn. But Jesus has traveled to the home of Jairus, the chief synagogue official in Capernaum. And after raising his daughter from the dead, he leaves the house only to be chased down by two men who are in desperate need. We'll pick it up in Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And he entered the house. The blind men came up to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all throughout that land. And as they were going out, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him. And after the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds were amazed and were saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. And verse 27 picks up with Jesus having left Jairus' house, where word is already spreading about what he's done. He's already raised Jairus' only daughter, his 12-year-old daughter, back to life. He's resurrected her from the dead. And Jesus, when he leaves the house, he's on his way, and two men begin to follow him. Now, both of these men were blind, and so obviously they're seeking to be healed. However, Matthew tells us that in their desperation, they are crying out to Jesus. This Greek word translated crying out is kradzo, which can be rendered many different ways. And when I was looking at it this week, I was kind of surprised. One usage of this Greek word is that of a raven squawking, the sound of a raven. And they always, don't they always come at like five o'clock in the morning outside your window and that's what you wake up with? Maybe it's just me. But that, that obnoxious squawking of a, a raven or a crow, that's the same basic idea here. But it's more commonly rendered as intense shouting or screaming. And so the sense is, once they realized that Jesus was there, they heard that Jesus was there, obviously they can't see him, and so they begin calling out for him. And they're screaming at the top of their lungs, and they're calling for Jesus to respond. But what are they crying out? This is what they're saying. Have mercy on us, son of David. Many scholars have challenged this rendering and have noted that really a better translation, perhaps, of that phrase would be, take pity on us. R.C. Sproul imagines this phrase more as, have compassion on our pitiable condition. But they're calling for mercy. They're calling for compassion. Essentially, they're, they're crying out saying, 
We're blind, we're blind, we're in desperate condition. Please help us, have mercy, have mercy. No matter how you slice it, the sentiment is clear. They're begging Jesus to show them mercy and heal them of their blindness. Now, to be clear, many people cried out to Jesus during his ministry. It was not uncommon for Jesus, no matter where he went, to have crowds of people following and calling for him and grabbing at his clothes and trying to touch him and pleading with him. And that was a common occurrence. However, this is the first place in Matthew's Gospel that somebody refers to Jesus as the son of David. The son of David. Now, to be clear, Matthew himself, the writer of this gospel, has already referred to Jesus as the son of David in the very first verse. And if you remember back to December of 2019, we went through that genealogy. The very first verse, verse 1, calls Jesus the son of David. But that verse... Because remember, Matthew's writing this several decades after the events have taken place. And so Matthew's looking back and calling Jesus the son of David in the course of the narrative. This is the first place that we see somebody in this story refer to Jesus as the son of David. Now at this stage of the ministry, nobody, it seemed, was connecting the dots to refer to him in such a way. But these two blind men... They're following Jesus and they're screaming, Son of David, at the top of their lungs all throughout the streets of Capernaum. What does this title signify? What's the big deal he calls him Son of David? What does this mean? Well, it points to a covenant that was made with King David a thousand years before Jesus was even born. In fact, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7. Leading up to our study of the Gospel of Matthew, we spent several months looking at Christ in the Old Testament, and we actually did go through this uh, section a little bit in a sermon earlier on. I was going back and checking these things out, and so we have covered this material, but I want to point ourselves back to it again. This chapter contains what is known as the Davidic Covenant. The Davidic Covenant. It is God's unconditional promise to David that not only will He preserve him, But he's also going to preserve his posterity, so his lineage. He's also going to preserve his throne. And he's going to preserve his kingdom through an even greater king. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're looking at verses 12 through 16. The Lord is telling David, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Verse 16, Your house and your kingdom shall endure Before me forever, your throne shall be established forever. Now there are a few things to note in this passage. First is that God promises that he will raise up a descendant in verse 12, a descendant to David. Not only is he going to preserve the bloodline of David, but he's going to have this son come forth. A son is going to come from David's lineage who's going to be seated on his throne. We read that in verse 13. However, verse 14, God himself renders himself to be the father to this descendant, and he says, and he will be a son to me. 
So God is placing himself in this father-son relationship. Now we see from the second half of verse 14 that this pertains in part to David's son, his own son, Solomon. When he talks about correcting and disciplining this son. And this, this son, Solomon, is going to be chastened for his sins and his iniquities. And we know that to be true. But when you keep reading the text, you see that the meaning behind all this extends even further beyond Solomon. There's many places in Scripture which are somewhat called double fulfillment, or there's there's a second meaning sort of in that, where God is speaking to a person in real time, but in essence it's kind of speaking past that person. Think about it this way. Uh, When Jesus looks at Peter and rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. He's, I mean, he's obviously talking to Peter about something Peter has just said, but there's more going on behind Peter, if you know what I mean. So that's essentially what these kinds of things are. He's talking to David about his son, but he's saying there, there's actually a greater son that I'm making reference to here. Verse 16 says that David's house and David's kingdom and his throne are going to endure forever. Forever. The promise is restated in Psalm 89 where God declares, I have made a covenant with my chosen and I have sworn to David my servant and I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne for all generations. But there's just one problem. The last Davidic king was deposed at the Babylonian captivity. Zedekiah, there's a king named Zedekiah, a descendant of David, he's a son of David, He was captured by Nebuchadnezzar. He was made to watch his own sons be killed in front of him. That was the last image before he was blinded and he had his eyes put out. And for the next 600 years, there was no king in Israel. It stopped. The bloodline of David continued, so his descendants continued, which is the purpose of Matthew's genealogy. But the line of David was preserved even though his throne was vacant. There were several so-called kings who would claim to sit on the throne, but really there was no Davidic king in Israel. And so Matthew records Jesus' genealogy from Jeconiah, who is a Davidic descendant at the time of the captivity. And he goes all the way through the, the, the line here. He goes to Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, Abiud, Eliakim, Azor, Zadok. He goes to Achim, he goes to Eliud, Eliezer, Mathan, Jacob, Joseph, and then to Jesus. And so he connects them genealogically. Genealogically speaking, Jesus is a son of King David, his bloodline. But Jesus is more than just a descendant. He is the son of David prophesied to establish the eternal throne. And this prophesied king, this anointed one, this Messiah, he is the promised one who is going to come and establish God's kingdom. And the evidence of Messiah's arrival was marked by signs and wonders. Signs and wonders, that's one of the reasons why we see so much of this with Jesus in the Gospels. This was to authenticate his ministry, but more than his ministry, his Messiahship. It's very interesting, when the angel visits Mary, his mother, in Luke 1.30, he tells her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, and he will be great. And he will be called the Son of of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him a throne, or the throne, of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Even in the promise to his mother by the angel, this angel's making reference to the Davidic throne and the lineage, the kingdom of Christ. It's remarkable. All this ties together. 
And Israel is waiting for this son of David. It's not just a lineage thing. There's a specific son of David, this king that they're waiting for. But they didn't know he had arrived yet until he started performing these signs and wonders that would point to his true identity. Go back to Matthew 9. So once again, why did Jesus do all these things? Was it just to bless the people that were around him? Was it just to bring harmony and happiness and healing and all this wonderful stuff? Was it just to make for a a micro-utopian society? No, it's more than that. It's more than that. Jesus is authenticating his own identity. He was putting it on display as clear as day that he was the Messiah. And this, when the men hear about these signs and wonders, this is what triggers in their mind, this has got to be the son of David. Jesus, he's making his way down the street in Matthew 9. These two blind men, they're following and they're screaming at him. Screaming at him, begging him to show compassion. And they're calling him the son of David. Screaming in Capernaum, son of David, son of David. What does he do? Does he stop and turn around like with the woman with the hemorrhage and minister to them and address them publicly? No. In fact, he kind of walks away and he ducks and hides in this house. It's very interesting. Whose house does he go into? We don't know. It's possibly Matthew's house. But Jesus does not confront these men. They follow him screaming until he goes into this house. But once they're in the house... These two screaming men, they follow him into the house. Look at verse 28. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him. And that's when he addresses them. And Jesus, he says to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Notice that it is only inside the house that Jesus addresses them. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. That's important. But he asks them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? This is a targeted question. This is a targeted question. He doesn't ask, do you believe that God can heal you? Do you believe, generally speaking, that you could be made well? That's not what he's asking. More specific than that, he says, do you believe that I am able? The Greek word is dunamis. Do you you believe I have the power to do this? This is an opportunity for them to profess their faith in Jesus specifically. He's asking, do you believe in me. You're calling me son of David in the streets. Do you believe that I really am the son of David? That I can do the things that you claim I can do? Do you believe that? And how do they respond? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Now, the word for Lord here is kurios in the Greek. It can mean simply sir. It could be just a, a reverent title. But scholars who examine this passage in the context, they believe that in light of their declaration of Jesus as the son of David, as the Messiah, These two men are saying more than simply sir. That they're actually professing Jesus to be the Lord God. Officially the title, He is the Lord. This is no less than the same thing as Peter's profession of faith in Matthew 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They're saying the same thing. Son of David, you are the Lord. It's the same thing. This is a profession of faith. Look at verse 29. After they say this, verse 29, he says, they touched, He touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. This miracle is more than simply an act of compassion to heal their eyes. Jesus healed so many people. 
Many scholars believe that there was a period of time, perhaps that three-year period, that there wasn't a single sick person in Israel. Because Jesus traveled everywhere, and it says all of Jerusalem, all of Samaria, all these people were coming out to see him, and they're all being healed. And even as we read even further down uh, in verse 35, we're going to cover that next week, but verse 35, Jesus was going throughout all the cities and villages, all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Everywhere he goes, he's healing people. But this is different. This healing is connected to something else. This is a picture, my friends, of salvation, of restoration. See, they're coming to him for physical healing, but they're coming to him as their Messiah. They're pleading with him as their Messiah, as their son of David. And in their hearts, there's a desperate longing for the king of the universe. They want Jesus. They wanted him, not just his miracle. There's more going on. I find it difficult to ignore the poetry of the biblical imagery here. And I had to think about it this week, and I don't don't know if I've read this before, but it, it just struck me. The last son of David that was on the throne, King Zedekiah, the last son of David had to watch his sons die and then was blinded. The very next and ultimate son of David, King Jesus, watched his two sons come alive and then open their eyes. It's a reversal of Zedekiah. It's remarkable. Behold, this is Jesus making all things new, restoring people. He's restoring their eyes, but eyesight is is spiritual eyesight if you look at the metaphor even further. You read the Gospel of John over and over again. It's sight to the blind, sight to the blind. It's understanding. It's the eyes of your heart being enlightened. They didn't just see Jesus visibly. They knew Him in their hearts. They saw Him in their minds. And these men, they're pleading for mercy. But Psalm 145 says that the Lord is gracious and merciful, and His mercies are all over His works. Jesus' works were dripping with His mercy and His kindness and His love for people. He wasn't just a, a stoic doctor saying, well, you know, do this and do that, and there you go, and send you on your way. No, He, he grabbed people. He touched their eyes. He took saliva from His own mouth and He applied it to their face. He held them. He hugged them. He kissed them. I mean, he was intimate with his creation. Again, further down, verse 36, we're going to cover this next week, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Compassion, if you were to study out the Greek, it means from from the guts, from the inner, inner organs. He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus healed people and he ministered to people because of His transcendent love for them. His love for them. So again, these men are overjoyed. For the first time, they can see. And for the first time, they can see. But Jesus warns them. He warns them. This is very interesting. Verse 30, the text says, He sternly warned them. See that no one knows about this. He sternly warned Why did He warn them? Ever ever think about that? I've been chewing on that question for years. Why did he want to stop someone from declaring his glory? Scholars have scratched their heads over this. Why would Jesus insist that a 
person not tell anybody else that they've been healed. One theory, one popular theory, is that he just didn't want to invite more people to swarm him for healings on demand. Because again, remember, yes, he is truly God, he is fully divine, but he's also truly man and he's fully human. And he got tired, he got hungry, he had to rest, he had to sleep, he had to go away to pray. And so when you have thousands of people around you day in and day out for three years pulling at you and grabbing at you and screaming at you, at a certain point, you get a little overwhelmed. Jesus, in his humanness, was overwhelmed at times by all the people, all the crowds. He had to escape sometimes. And so again, the theory is that he was telling them, look, keep this to yourself, because he wanted to sort of protect some of that, to not overwhelm himself and the disciples in the ministry. And certainly all of Israel was full of suffering people. He's only one man. But more likely, and this is the explanation I tend to gravitate toward, more likely it has to do with the fact that he's being identified as the son of David. Because several other times we read about him healing somebody and he doesn't say anything about keeping it to themselves. But he says it in the context of these men declaring him to be the son of David. See, there was the risk of being proclaimed the Messiah too early, prematurely, because messianic expectations were already high. There were already, I mean, the, the Jews were, because of the occupation of Rome, that was like their battle cry. They wanted Messiah to come and free them from oppression and free them from the Romans and establish the Jewish nation as strong and mighty and defeat all their enemies. I mean, they wanted him to come so badly. They were eager to identify him, and that was obviously evidenced by the blind men. I mean, as soon as they thought that they saw or could apprehend the Son of Man, they were screaming for him. But here's the thing, Jesus had work to do. He had a mission to fulfill. He had sermons to preach, miracles to perform. Events had to unfold in precise order. There was a divine timetable. And if things were revealed too quickly, his enemies would have acted. And he would have been killed without fulfilling his mission. So he sternly warns them not to say anything. Don't tell anybody about this. There's a reason. But in time, Jesus is going to demonstrate his power. He's going to preach the gospel. He's going to establish his identity. And he's going to do so in such a way that it's so irrefutable. Again, you have to keep on going. In the, in the gospel accounts, he reveals so much more. And his teaching becomes even more powerful and more divisive. And his miracles become even more extensive to the point where all of Israel and the surrounding regions are so convinced that there's something going on with this man, even if they don't know exactly who he is. There's something about Jesus. The crowds are cheering. He's brought in on Palm Sunday to cheering crowds. That had to get to that point. So that there was, it was irrefutable who he really was so that nobody could plead ignorance, certainly not the religious leaders, that nobody could say they didn't know, they didn't see, they didn't hear. They asked the questions. They interrogated him. They found no fault in him except that he claimed to be God. It was so irrefutable by the end that his enemies had no choice but to oppose him sinfully and in their wickedness. If you're going to kill him, it's not going to be by accident. It's not going to be because he didn't know. You're going to do so with premeditation and with sinful intent to put him to death. And that's what they did. Because it's going to come a day when all of Israel is going to see him for who he really is. 
But he would be rejected. And when he was rejected, it was obvious. Obvious. How obvious? So much so that people would actually rather have a a murderer, a thief, a terrorist to go free than the sinless Son of God be crucified. Jesus is so clearly the Messiah. So clearly the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. In this truth, my friends, this hits you right between the eyes. You can't read the Gospels and not see it. In fact, people have read the Gospel of John, talked to nobody else, and gotten saved because it's so clear who Jesus is and what He's come to do to save people from their sins. And Jesus had to establish Himself with no doubt. And so that's why He told them to remain silent. But look at verse 31. But they went out and spread the news about Him throughout all that land. One part of me wants to get kind of mad at these guys for disobeying the Lord, but the other part of me is like, I mean, come on. At a certain point when, you, when this happens in your life, I mean, how many of you who've been changed through the gospel of Christ and be changed by Christ, born again, have a new life in Christ, can you keep it to yourself? And I would even argue you can't keep it to yourself because the testimony of God's grace in your own life is so strong, so powerful. You can't, you can't stop people from talking. And that was them. Not only were they healed from their blindness, but they've had their, their, their suspicions confirmed. This is the son of David. They've been Jews their whole life. They've been waiting for the son of David to come, the Messiah. He's here. He healed me and he's here. How could you not talk about it? And so they go out and they start talking to everybody, everybody about Jesus. And now... At this point, a demon-possessed man is brought in. Look at verse 32. As they were going out, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him. The healing of the blind men really opens the door for others to come in. Some have suggested, actually, that it was the two men that were healed that actually brought this guy in. If you read the, the King James, the old King James Version... It seems, the, the grammar seems to suggest that it was actually these two guys that bring this other man in. That could be, we can't be sure. However, this man is mute. Literally, he's unable to speak. And some believe that this is also indicative of the fact that he couldn't hear either. That he was, he was deaf and he was mute. But the source of his affliction is a demon that is tormenting him. He's demon-possessed. And Matthew, in his characteristically understated way, notes that Jesus simply casts out the demon and the mute man spoke. Again, another sign pointing to his deity. And how do the crowds respond to this? What do they say? Matthew records that they were amazed. Thaumadzo in the Greek, it's, they were shocked, they were in awe. Literally, the, the word is struck. They were just struck with awe at this occurrence. In a short time, they had seen Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead and then immediately open the eyes of two blind men who were calling him the son of David and then immediately healing this mute man by casting out a demon. All this in rapid succession. They're just, they're, they're, their brains can't comprehend who this is, what's going on, why are they seeing, seeing all these things. They're absolutely amazed. And so much so that they actually declare in the next verse, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. 
we've, we've seen some stuff. We've never seen this. This is unlike anything. And they're right. If you compare the Old Testament figures, the, the Christ-type figures, people like Moses and Elijah and Solomon and Samson, these are types of Christ. But when you compare and contrast, when Elijah raised the widow's son in 1 Kings 17, he did so by laying down down over the boy three different times and praying fervently to God. It It was a miracle that took a process. But Jesus, however, he raises Jairus' daughter immediately. There's no process, there's no pleading, he just does it. Again, very different. Of the more than 50 miracles recorded in the Old Testament, we don't find any prophet restoring the sight to the blind or speech to the mute. We just don't see this. And so when they say, we've never seen this before, they're right. They were used to reading stories about miraculous and wonderful things, but this was a category that was totally different. Who is this? And the disciples said it on the the sea. Who is this that the winds and the sea obey him? What kind of a man is this who raises the dead and cleanses lepers and, and casts out demons? And heals people of their blindness. And restores limbs. And gets people to talk again. This ministry is altogether unique. There's nobody like Jesus. Nobody. Setting aside His power over nature, Jesus is the most dynamic and miraculous healer in human history. Never has anybody, nobody before Him, nobody since Him. That ministry is unique. And the people, they couldn't deny it. They could not deny it. It was right in their face. Nothing like this has ever happened before. I've never seen this. And they were struck. They were amazed. But the Pharisees are looking on. They have a different view. Look at verse 34. But the Pharisees were saying, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Now, I want you to note here in the text, very important, they don't deny the miracle. They don't deny the reality of what they just saw. They all know Jairus. They probably know his family, his daughter. They've seen his daughter before. They know she died. They can't deny she's been raised. They see these men blind, now they can see. They see this man mute, now he can speak. So they could see the miracles. They never, you never once catch a Pharisee, a scribe, a Sadducee, anybody denying what's obvious in front of them. It's just as stunning and obvious to them as it is to everybody else. But whereas the blind men believed that Jesus could heal because he was the Messiah, the religious leaders in Israel, they attributed the power of Jesus to another source. They say, oh, it's not coming from him. Oh, it can't be him. It's not coming from God. No. They're saying that somehow he's channeling his power by the ruler of the demons. Who is the ruler of the demons? Satan. Satan. They're attributing the power and the wonder and the glory of God through the hands of Jesus to Satan. We're going to talk about this in a couple weeks here. But they believe that Jesus was being aided by Satan somehow to cast out demons from this afflicted man. This wouldn't be the first time or the only time. This 
similar event happens later in Matthew chapter 12, and Jesus heals another deaf mute. The Pharisees, they accuse him of doing the same thing, except by the power of Beelzebul, who is Satan. And we're going to read about this later, but Jesus actually fires back in that instance. And he asks this question, well, how can Satan cast out Satan? He says, is, is he divided against himself? It makes no logical sense, my friends, that you would use the power of Satan to cast out the demons who belong to Satan. Jesus is reasoning. Why, why would I do that? Why would that be a thing? Is his kingdom divided somehow? And they can't answer. The notion's foolish. And as we're going to see later, it's downright blasphemous. But that's another fight for another day. This is only, my friends, the beginning of the opposition. Nine chapters in, and now we're starting to see the opposition is mounting, and it's going to keep on getting more and more severe. But all these miracles, they serve as a sign to show people that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Redeemer. He is the Savior. He's the coming King. Jesus is Almighty God in human flesh. And He comes to earth to free the lost and the dying from their sins. And He does so by giving His life on the cross. And we understand that reality to be true even today. And that's our message to all people everywhere. That every single person has sinned against God by omission and commission. We think evil thoughts, we say evil things, we do evil things. Not one is righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the good news is this, that Jesus, by His own life and by His own death, came to seek and save the lost. And He went to the cross and died and shed His blood, Himself being perfect and spotless, never once sinned. He gives His life on the cross to pay the penalty for sins. And on that cross, the sins of the sinner are taken away, removed, and punishment is averted and directed to Jesus. And when He dies, the penalty of our sins die with Him. And when He rises three days later, we who are in Christ rise with Him as well. It's forgiveness on the cross. It's payment for sin by the cross. It's reconciliation and restoration through the cross. And all those who repent, who turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone, Jesus talks about in John 3 that they are born again. And Nicodemus, our beloved Pharisee friend, will say, well, how can that be? That a man would crawl back up into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus says, no, that's not how it is. But rather, it is a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual thing. Where He makes something in you brand new. He births you anew inside. And now, you have new eyes to see and new ears to hear the voice of God in your own heart calling you out of the tomb and into life, saving you and redeeming you and reshaping you for His glory. And one day you and I will be with Him if we belong to Him. And my friends, I would just continue. I would plead with you. I would plead with you the same way that these two blind men cried out that He is the Son of David. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. No matter what you have in your past, no matter what you've done, it does not matter how severe, how awful, how wretched. And you might say, I could never be forgiven for this. There is forgiveness, true forgiveness, in Christ Jesus. 
Turn from your sins. Confess your sins to Jesus. And you will find forgiveness. You'll be forgiven. You'll be healed and restored to Him. And you will find joy and gladness. And sorrow will flee away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to You. That every single time You save a person, by all means, it is a miracle. You bring a person from death to life. You do something that not even human doctors can do. You revive the soul. And You give us new spiritual eyes and new ears to hear. And we see You in the Gospels, in the Scripture. We see You displayed in our hearts, Lord, through Your Word and by the Spirit. And we hear Your voice speaking to us and calling us by name. And You draw us to Yourself. It is miraculous. It is wonderful. You are the Son of David. You are the King who was to come. You are the Redeemer and the Savior, the Prince of Peace, the Wonderful Counselor, Counselor, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There is no one higher than You, our Supreme Christ. And Lord, we stand in awe of You that You would even save one sinner, but yet You save countless thousands upon thousands and millions We don't even know the number. But You are our righteousness, O Lord. And I pray, I I plead with You, and I pray even on behalf of those who are listening, that You would do a work in the hearts of those who need that work done. And Lord, some today might be coming this morning and maybe they're blind. Maybe they can't see their own sin. Maybe they can't see You. They read the words on the page and they just don't see. And so, Lord, I plead with You that You would open their eyes by their faith, according to their faith, and that they would see their own wretched condition and their need for the Savior. They would see that they've transgressed the law of God, but they would also see that there is a risen Christ who's given His life for them. I pray, Lord, that they would come to know You as Lord and Savior and rejoice even this day that they can have life anew in Jesus. Thank You for opening the eyes of the blind. And for those of us who belong to You, thank You for opening our eyes. We could not do it ourselves. You had to touch our eyes to heal us. And so we thank You. And as we turn to Your table, O Lord, I pray that the saints would consider the cost of their own salvation and worship You in spirit and truth.